2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we find ourselves this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul's swan song. His very final writing that we ever received from the Apostle Paul is 2 Timothy. He's, he's writing to his protege, his son, as he describes him in the faith. And as he does so, he wants to urge upon him a centrality of ministry that focuses upon the word, the word of the living God. And there's no richer place where we will find this in the scripture than in these few verses from the Apostle Paul. Beginning in verse 14 and extending to verse 16, this is God's word from first, Second Timothy chapter 3. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge before you that your word is truth. Christ's prayer for us regarding the word was that we would be sanctified in the truth. And so we enter into that prayer in this hour and we ask you to free our minds from distractions, to clear our hearts of, of forces that would keep your word from having a transformative impact upon our lives. We want to know you, we want to experience you, we want to worship you. And so we ask now that you would come and, and as it were, like a dart, like an arrow, shoot into our souls the beauty of this word and make it live, make it sing. So much so that our testimony together at the end of our time in your word would be that we have met with the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't you love that little phrase there in verse 14 and verse 15? What you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The Apostle Paul is probably alluding there to chapter 1 of 2 Timothy 1 where he talks about the mother and grandmother of Timothy, Eunice and Lois, who poured into his life. As we think about children's ministry this morning, we think about worship bulletins and ways for them to engage. It's, it's important to hear that I'm sure Timothy was a lot like a, a young boys in our congregation, squirming and having a difficult time paying attention as he went to the, uh, went to the temple and went to the synagogue. Uh, those would have been challenges for him just as they are challenges for us, but he was trained in them from early on. He can hearken back to the formation the priority that happened when he was just a little boy. G.K. Chesterton has said that he learned everything that he ever really needed to learn in the nursery. Right? At the youngest of ages, he learned all that he ever really needed to learn. And you know, one of the things that many of you learned in the nursery was a little song that says, Jesus loves me, 
This I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a truth that the youngest among us can recite in that beautiful melodic frame and lodges away in our memories never to escape. And yet it's a truth that no matter how old we are in this room, it never ceases to get sweeter. That Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That little phrase teaches us about the strength of the Bible, teaches us about the authority of the Bible, it teaches us about the power of the Bible, it teaches us about why we should listen to the Bible, because it teaches us about the love of God. As we consider the teaching of the Bible this morning, as we consider its power and its strength, I simply want to look with you in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in these few verses, primarily in verse 16 under three headings this morning. I want you to see the absolute authority of the Word of God in the first place. The absolute authority of the Word of God. I want you to see, secondly, the transformative power of the Word of God. I want you to see, secondly, the transformative power of the Word of God. I want you to see, thirdly, the life-shaping and sustaining profit of the Word of God. The life-shaping and sustaining profit of the Word of God. The authority of the Word of God, the transformative power of the Word of God, the life-shaping and sustaining profit of the Word of God. I think all of that's embedded embedded right there in 2 Timothy 3.16. I want to start with this, this word on absolute authority. It comes out of that plank of the Reformation known as sola scriptura or scripture alone. Do you realize that all of the precious doctrines that we hold, justification by faith alone, the priesthood of all believers, and many other wonderful doctrines recovered, crystallized, and distilled in the Reformation, all assume this particular principle, sola scriptura, scripture alone. It's because behind all of the doctrines that were recovered in the Reformation, there is this fundamental doctrine, and that is the question regarding what authority must we trust in order to get a true revelation of God? What authority can we trust, must we trust, to get a true revelation of the Word of God? In the late medieval period, the Roman Catholic Church had said, hey, look to us for that. The church is the ultimate and final authority for the revelation of God. They put the church alongside of the word of God as the ultimate arbiter on the truth of the gospel. When the reformers came along, they said, no, that won't stand. The reason it won't stand is because men err. Men make mistakes. Because of that, the church, who's made of men, are going to make mistakes. And thus, we can't allow the ultimate and final authority to be rooted in the church. It must be rooted in that which is unerring, that which is infallible, that which is necessary, reliable, sufficient, and of which deserves our total trustworthiness. Of course, they were speaking of the Scriptures. In a word, the Reformers argued that the church isn't master over the Bible, but the Bible is master over the church. They got that teaching from verses like 2 Timothy 3.16. Where we find Paul saying to us, all scripture is literally breathed out. 
It's the Greek word theopanoustos. It's actually a compound word. Theos for God, panoustos for wind or breath. It is to say that the Bible is God's very exhalings. It is his spiration. As I am breathing out words now speaking to you from this pulpit, God has breathed out his word. It sits in your lap. As we read together the word of God. Now some of you remember the old language from 2 Timothy 3.16. It was the way that I memorized it long ago. All scripture is what? Inspired. Inspired fine language. It's getting at the very same principle. But the actual probably more faithful or more simply stated way of describing it is God breathed. In large part because inspiration has the potential of being misunderstood. A lot of people would read all scriptures inspired by God and they would think to themselves, Yes, when I read the scripture I feel inspired. I feel inspired. But of course that's not what the text is trying to get at. It's not trying uh, to say it's a feeling that we get when we read the Bible, and at that point, the Bible is inspired to us. That's not what's being described. It's not existential or experiential in that way. It's trying to say the very nature of the Bible is full of the reality of God, His very breath. It's being as the Scripture. Now, let me give you an illustration. The Chicago Cubs clinched the National League Central Division on Wednesday evening, beating the St. Louis Cardinals 5-1 to and effectively eliminating them from playoff contention. When that happened, I was inspired. <laughs> I was deeply inspired. It affected me deeply. Now, there are others in this room who were affected differently by the outcome of that game. Some of you yesterday saw the Tennessee Volunteers play, and you might say it was a very uninspiring performance from the Tennessee Volunteers. Both of those are rooting it in the felt sense. And as you can see from that, we might have different feelings about it. We might have a negative or a positive feeling. Well, that's not what we mean when we're talking about the Word of God. It really doesn't matter how it is that you feel about it. It's breathed out by God nonetheless. Now, I fully trust as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as you read the word of God, there will be all kinds of things that will inspire you. But know this full and well, that when you read the Bible and you don't feel inspired, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with the Bible. Instead, it points to something that may be missing in you. The reformers taught of the sola scriptura, the authority of the Bible alone. And in saying that, we're not in any way meaning to be derogatory towards the church as an authority or tradition as an authority or history as an authority. But what they were trying to say was that the ultimate authority, the final authority, can't rest with history or church or tradition, but that the Bible itself is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. It's the only thing that we can totally give our lives over to and know that it will in no way ever steer us wrong. And because of that, tradition and the church and history must be in accord with, must be checked by, must be under the rule of Scripture. Now, we all know that there can be authoritative people or authoritative texts that don't actually exercise much real living power. Sometimes we refer to this as lame duck or figurehead authority. The Bible's not like that. 
In the second place, what we see in this text is not only is it absolutely authoritative because the very character and breadth of God is the reality of Scripture, but we see that God's words are powerfully transformative. I get the privilege each week of teaching at New College Franklin on Tuesday and Thursday mornings. I get the privilege of teaching some of the students in this room theology. As the Lord would have it, this week we are in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, one of the richest sections in all of the Bible, the creation narrative. As we were examining Genesis 1 and 2, you know what we found out? We found out that God's words are different than ours. We found that God's words were powerful. That when he spoke, things appeared. We noticed that when God said, let there be light, light appeared. When he spoke, the luminaries in the sky were made and the planets were hung and formed. That when he said, oceans gather in one area and dry land appear in another, that happened just as he decreed that it would happen. That his voice, his speakings, not only authoritatively in a general or umbrella term, but are powerful in terms of their effect. They actually bring transformation. I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes when I speak, people don't do anything. (laughs) It just doesn't have that kind of power. There's a qualitative different power that comes with the word of God. As you look through the pages of scripture, you find that as God promises, like a worldwide flood's going to come, and it comes in Genesis 9. When God speaks and confuses the languages at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. When God speaks and calls out Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and says, You will have a son. I know you're old and your wife is old and past childbearing ages. And I know that in this context it would seem far-fetched whether that would ever be possible. But if God has spoken it, friends, it will happen. And Isaac was born in the lineage of redemption extended in and through him. This is to say nothing about Moses and the voice from the burning bush or his spoken words over the plagues of Egypt, God using the voice of the prophet or the parting of the Red Sea or raining bread from heaven or all of the other powerful things that God spoke in provision of his people. But it is to note that God's quality of speaking is transformational. It's powerful. It's powerful personally in our lives. It is with regards to floods and movements of men and nations and providence and creation, but it's powerful with regards to lives. Think of the lives of like Hannah, Joshua and Samuel, David, Elijah and Elisha, Jonah, Nehemiah, Daniel, Matthew, Peter and and Paul. Uh, These are prophets and men and women of old who engaged the very word of God. And in engaging that word of God, it transformed their life. It gave shape to ministries and effectiveness that they couldn't have with their own voice and vocabulary. They needed the power of the Holy Spirit to execute the purposes of God. I love the conversion story of C.H. Spurgeon. It was a snowy day there in England. Spurgeon was impressed at the age of 15 to make him make his way to a local church, a primitive Methodist congregation. It was raining or, or snowing so hard that morning that the pastor didn't even make it. It was a deacon, a lay minister who actually mounted the pulpit. 
At this point, C.H. Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, our favorite Baptist preacher, as us Presbyterians like to say, he was converted that morning. He talks about it in his autobiography. Speaking about the message, he said this, He had not much to say, thank goodness. For that compelled him to keep repeating the text. And there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting in the gallery and he said, That young man there looks miserable. And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can do, and said, look, look, young man, look now. And I had a vision, not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe, and I understood what it was that I was to believe, and I did believe. And as the snow fell on the road home from that little house of prayer, I thought of every snowflake talked with me and told me of the pardon that I had found, for I was as white as the driven snow through the grace of God. Just a few years ago, I was listening to Brian Loritz preach on this very passage, a pastor out in California, and he was noting a, a moment in Spurgeon's ministry. It's, just, it's actually just a handful of years, only eight years after his conversion. Spurgeon, now 23 years old, was preparing to preach to a room full of dignitaries in London at the Crystal Auditorium. He was so nervous, it was the largest crowd that he had ever preached to. And so, like a, a, like a preacher will do, he goes ahead of time to be, just get a lay of the land. He had a feel of what the situation was going to look like. He wanted, in this pre-microphone age, to get a sense for the acoustics. And so, he stood upon the platform and he quoted in that booming C.H. Spurgeon voice, John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And unknown to Spurgeon was a custodial worker in the balcony at the Crystal Auditorium, there in the shadows. And as soon as he heard from Spurgeon's voice, John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that custodial worker fell on his face, repented, and gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was just testing the acoustics. He didn't even start preaching. <laughs> There's a power that's in this word. There's a transformative power in this word. I would call upon you to remember when this word began to transform you. The moment that you first heard the gospel and you realized that it was a word that you needed to hear all the way down to the bottom of your heart. That your heart's cry was to know that you were loved because you knew that you were guilty in sin. And to know that God in Christ had made a provision that was full and sufficient for you. And in that call to the gospel, whether it was in a bedroom or with a friend or, or with a Sunday school teacher in the midst of a sermon in the sanctuary, you gave your heart and life to Christ. And in that moment, things changed. They were different. This word has authority. But this word has power. Life transformative power. Isaiah 66 too puts it this way. These are the ones in whom God looks on with favor. Do you want to know who God looks on with favor? That's the word grace. You want to know who he looks on with favor? Do you want to be one of those that he looks on with favor? Here it is. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at my word. 
They understand the power of the word. They ascertain through the spirit the gravity and the significance, the weightiness of the authority of this word that comes from the living God. Not only is this word authoritative and, and transformative in its power, but thirdly, it's life-shaping and sustaining in terms of its profit. It profits us. That's the word for benefit. It benefits us. Paul says in verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. And it's profitable. It's beneficial. What can it be used for? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I want to take just a moment to look at each of these terms with regards to profit because I think as you approach the Word of God, don't you want to know what to get from it? Don't you know, want to know what to look for? Don't you, don't you want to know what to expect? How do you know if the Word's really getting into you? If the power of the Word is beginning to have its effect? Well, I want you to know that the Apostle Paul gives you here two positives and two negatives. He says, first of all, I want you to know it's profitable for teaching. That's positive. Reproof, that's negative. Correction, that's negative. Training in righteousness, that's positive. He hymns in the negative by two positives. Very smart. He wants you to know that when you read the Word, you're going to experience these four things in it. And so sometimes you may wonder to yourself, I don't sense myself being alive to the Word or warm to the Word. Well, there may be ways in which that needs to be stirred up and prayed through. There may be counsel that you need to be given with regards to that. There may be a lack of understanding to be able to ascertain it. But we shouldn't draw the conclusion that every time we hear the Word, we feel warm and fuzzy. Again, that would be to opt for the feeling of inspiration inside rather than the trust of the breathing out of the power of the Word of God. It's doing its work, friends, whether you know it or not. His Word goes forth, as Martha told us a second ago, and it will not return void. He will accomplish that for which His Word is sent. That's got to be the principle, foundational principle for the reason we come into worship every single week. To know that the Word is doing its work, whether we realize it or not. And I think that you see within the context of these four descriptors something of that confidence. He says first that the Word is good for teaching. This is the word for doctrine, for right belief, for truth. Do you realize that different from when you pick up the newspaper or you pick up a book or read a blog post, when you pick up the Word of God, you don't have to wonder or question or concern yourself or debate, do I like this? Do I think this is true? Do I agree with this? Can I trust this? You just give yourself over to it. There's one book in the world that you don't have to have a doubting filter for. The Word of God. It's good for teaching, for right doctrine, and for belief. This Bible is never going to steer um, you in the wrong direction. And so let it be the fundamental principle of your life. Just do yourself a favor. Every time you read the Bible and you receive something from the Bible, believe it. Believe it. It's true. If you find yourself going, I'm not sure if this is true, just know you're wrong. <laughs> just know that. It's really helpful. It's really helpful. There are times I engage with the Word of God. I don't like what it is that I read. I'm not sure about it. But I know that the problem doesn't lie with the Word. 
The problem lies with me. I may need more study. I may need help to understand it. I know that my desires, my beliefs, and my practices need to be conformed to the Word of God. And so set as the default in my heart is to know that if I've got pause about the Word of God, it has nothing to do with the Word of God. It has to do with my own heart. And the work must be done internally for me. Now, sometimes you'll read the Word and it won't make any sense to you. I'm not the only one who has this experience, right? Sometimes it will be confusing. One of, my most, uh, one of my most encouraging passages that I will regularly turn to is at the end of, of Peter's writings where he says, you know, some of the things in Paul's writing, they're just hard to understand. That's in the Bible, folks. Peter is saying some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. Do you agree? I agree. Sometimes it's very difficult to understand. Do you realize that at certain points of your life, there are things that you know now that you didn't know then? that are true, that you've gained over the course of reading the Bible, of sitting under the teaching and preaching of the Bible, of studying the Bible. There's things that you don't know today and you don't understand today that in 10 years, by God's grace, you will. Just because there are mysteries in the Bible doesn't mean you can't believe them. Believe them in their mystery. In their mystery. Lord, I believe what it is you tell me here. I'm not sure all of what it means, but whatever it means, I can't wait to discover it. I can't wait to discover it. Give me the light to be able to discover it. I know it's true. I know it's right. I want to conform to it. I'm confused by it. Show me the pathways that I ought to go. Show me the people that I ought to talk to. Help me pray through this passage. Give me the light that would only come from the illumination of your Holy Spirit. That's a faithful way to engage with the Scripture for its teaching is positive instruction. Secondly, reproof. This is our favorite part of Scripture. The warnings, the rebukes, the refutations. When the Apostle Paul tells to Timothy, listen, I want you to preach the whole counsel of God. He is saying at times you're going to say things, you're going to even read things in the Word of God that are going to upset you and upset others. That the Scripture is not always pleasant when we read it. The Greek for this word reproof literally means to be tested by trial, to expose something that's underneath and bring it out to the light, something that probably wanted to stay underneath. Friends, the reason why we need reproof is that if we don't have the Bible bringing into our lives um, rebuke, and exposure to the things that we do and feel and think that are wrong, we will go along and continue to believe and think and feel those things. And the Bible wants us conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's its aspiration and goal. So to do that, it's got to stop us in the track with a rebuke. It's got to effectively call out the areas that are in accord with sin or in false belief that need to be brought into the right. Let me just take a moment to give you some encouragement here. This is why we need to be careful in our reading of Scripture. that We are not just going back to all of the passages that we just love to read. We need to read the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Notice in verse 16 that word all. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, for you, you may feel like certain passages are really inspired because they make you feel really good. And other passages seem just a little less inspired because they don't affect you in the same way. Let me tell you this. 
Actually, the wisdom of a heart that that is true of would actually say to itself, I probably should read those scriptures that I'm not inspired by, moved by deeply, more because there's something in them that I'm missing. There's something in them that I need. God has given me all scripture, and for some reason, shape, or form, I'm missing the richness of what it is that it wants to communicate. I was in Virginia not too long ago, visited the home of Thomas Jefferson, and was reminded of the fact that he didn't like some of the Bible. You might remember this, that he actually took the Bible and he cut out the sections he didn't like, particularly all the sections that were of the supernatural, because he didn't believe a rational man could believe in supernatural happenings, which means that you cut out a whole bunch of the Scripture, if that's the case. In 1820, he actually published a book entitled The Life and the Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, because he liked the ethical teaching of Jesus, though he couldn't abide by anything that he did in a supernatural way. It was his kind of Bible substitute. Now, we may sit here this morning and think, goodness gracious, Thomas Jefferson was off his rocker. But how different is it if we decide to simply ignore large tracts of Scripture? How different is that? We have it all. We have the sense not to cut out some of it, but we don't have the sense to read it all and to really engage it. What Paul is actually teaching us here in this passage is that we must engage it from cover to cover. As a friend of mine says, from Genesis to the maps, we need to engage all of Scripture because all of it is God-breathed. Thirdly, correction. This term really is positive in this sense. It means to conform us to a path or to give us direction. Uh, one, of my, uh, one of my friends calls this the orthodontic use of the Bible. It takes what's out of line and it puts it back together. It makes it straight again. It, it conforms us or it, or it um, aligns us in a way that we wouldn't be otherwise. I remember uh, working in finished carpentry and having to, having to form an arch with a fine craftsman, having no idea how to bend wood. And he taught me how to cut the planks and soak the, the wood in water and then clamp it and put this glue upon it. And then over time, the wood would actually bend to the form so it could create a beautiful arch above a doorway. And I thought, if you'd have told me you can actually bend wood, I would have told you you're Reliant. And he had told me, he showed me with the art of how it is to conform over time with pressure, with the right ingredients and the fine touch, that the conforming of the wood to the pattern that was needed for the beautiful arch could happen. Listen, the scripture is doing the same thing. It's conforming our hearts, but you know how it's doing it? Not to an arch of a doorway. It's doing us to the image of Jesus. It's making us into his likeness. Do you know what God loves most to see? You know what it is? Himself. Because he is awesome and glorious and beautiful in every way. So the more that you're shaped into the image of him, the more he delights in the glory that you reveal of him. And so when he comes to us correctively, I want you to see in some sense he's creating a spiritual memory muscle for us. He wants us to be so shaped that our reflexes go in the way of the path that he has dictated and determined for us rather than the bypass that we're, we're so often directed towards. Teaching, reproof, correction, finally training in righteousness. Uh, the idea here in training in righteousness is for the long-term sustaining growth and health. 
of the Christian. I want you to see these combined kind of coming up in the training of, uh, of righteousness. After you've been taught and reproved and corrected and the word's been done, you know what begins to happen? You begin to be equipped in the righteousness of God. You begin to be shaped and trained in the righteousness of God. It literally means you're moving from maturity, immaturity to maturity. You're, you're moving from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. You're moving from a lesser growth to a greater growth. Over the course of our lives as we submit ourselves to the Word of God, the Word of God does not work usually, typically, like a magic potion. You read the verse and poof, the reality about that verse becomes you. No, it's pressing into it. Over time, the faithfulness of a holy rut, a habit of reading the scripture and giving yourself over to it. And then as you look back over the course of your life, you begin to see, wow, really things have changed. There is a difference that begins to show up when we commit ourselves to the means of grace. This is what Paul means in Ephesians 4 when he says he's given us the prophets and the apostles, notice, for this reason, that we might attain to the unity of the faith, he says. The knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The reason I love that prayer from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, that we're growing into mature manhood, is this. All of the Scripture is to lead us to Jesus. All of the Scripture is to lead us to Jesus. He says, everything, the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, and teachers, you know why they're given to you? So that the fullness of Jesus Christ would be made known to you and in you. That you would be conformed into his image. Now, the reason that's so important is that when you get to teaching, it's teaching about the promises of God that lead you to the fulfillment of Jesus. When you get to reproof, it's showing you how you fall short of the standards of God that leads you to the need of Jesus. When it gets to correction, where you need to walk on the path and you realize Jesus walked the narrow way for you. He's the only one that's been faithful to be completely conformed to the desires of the Father. And when you strive to, it shows you how much you need Jesus to get you back on the narrow way. When you think about being trained in righteousness, you have to look to the Son of Righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, because He alone is the one who has fulfilled the call of the Christian. You see, the whole of the scriptures is to lead us to Jesus. This is why in Luke chapter 24, at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus is on the road with his disciples, we're told that he actually takes up the Bible. I want you to, I want you to just process this for a minute. The Son of God is there. It would seem he could just speak. But what does he decide to do on the road? Go back to the Bible to communicate. He decides to go back to the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's the threefold division of the Old Testament. He goes back to the Old Testament. You know what he does? He gives them a Bible study in Luke 24. When Jesus wants to communicate who he is, he goes to the Bible. He goes to the Bible and he teaches them from Old Testament up to his own fulfillment. And it says that he opened their minds Verse 45 of Luke 24, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. It's a glorious thing when you begin to realize that when you're talking about sola scriptura and the authority of the word of loan and all of its purposes and prophets, the main focus of the Bible is not merely to give you morals. 
not merely to give you true information, but to lead you into a thriving relationship with the Son of God, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's its purpose. That's its purpose. And this book very often collects dust in your home and in mine. But it's the living exhalings of the divine speaking to you his love story of his care for you to make you into the image of his beloved son. Does that not compel you to dust it off? And to get within its covers and to realize you find ways to read everything else but the Bible. You find ways to engage all kinds of media but the Bible. And the Bible is the only one you can really trust. And we wonder in many cases why our character is not more fashioned after Jesus. That's no wonder when we think that, is it? You know, one of the things we can say about the Bible, because it's God-breathed, it's His authority, it's powerful and it's profitable for these reasons, is that it will be enduring. Yeah, friends, what you, the New York Times bestsellers that you're reading, they're going to come and go for the most part. Most of what you're going to read and engage online is going to come and go. And it might, in so many cases, cloud your thoughts with regards to the Bible rather than clarify them. Let's make it a point and a commitment that we're not people who are so well-schooled in all of the other words, but we've neglected the word. Let's not be those people. Because this word is the only enduring word. You know, I think that the 18th century French philosopher Voltaire needed to hear that. He always railed against the Bible, as many of you will know. A, a lover of the Enlightenment, a scientifically educated man, he argued and claimed that the Bible would become obsolete within a hundred years of his lifetime. But he must not have known, Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, that heaven and earth would have to pass away before a jot and tittle of this scripture would pass away. And so it's ironic, isn't it, that upon Voltaire's death, his home in Geneva, Switzerland, was put up for auction. And guess who bought it? The Geneva Bible Society. <laughs> and for decades upon decades in Voltaire's home in Geneva, Switzerland, the place where John Calvin rooted the Reformation, uh, of which John Knox said it was the greatest school of Christ on the earth, in that place, thousands upon thousands of copies of the Bible were published and distributed. The fact of the matter is the Bible has by many been said to be outdated and irrelevant and obsolete and we need to move on to bigger and better words. And somehow, shape or form, because of the providence and the power of God, this book always outlives its detractors. Always. And it will outlive you and me too. And so we should live by its word. For Jesus did. And he is that word, made flesh, the fulfillment of everything that this scripture speaks to. Give yourself to the Bible. Make yourself a master of its contents. And it will master you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would stir us up in the truth of the authority, the power, and the 
ever-present relevance of your word. You've not called us to make your Bible relevant. (laughs) Your Bible is relevant because it's your Bible. And you are always relevant. Father, if it's not answering the questions that we're asking, then we might should ask different questions. We should be concerned with what it is it's concerned with. We should read it with a sense of its priority. And so we ask you to renew our commitment to your word and to grant us the great measure of your spirit that will have it jump off the page into our hearts and our lives and shape us into the most beautiful thing imaginable, a trophy of your grace, the image of Jesus Christ. Stir this within us. We ask it in Christ's name.